Welcome to The Structure Show. I'm Tom Krasett, executive editor of Structure, the company that brings you the most informative and useful events in the tech industry. This latest Structure Show is the first in a while after a uh, complicated month of March during which we we put on Structure Data in early March. Uh, It had a great event uh, with that in San Francisco. And then I decided just to complicate my month a little further by moving from California to Portland in search of more rain and new craft beer. Uh, so thanks, thanks for bearing with us, and we're we're really excited to get back to uh, get back to putting out these structure shows. Uh, on today's show, we're going to talk about Microsoft and open source, uh, two things that did not go together very not too long ago. Uh, we're going to talk about an executive shakeup at Intel, Microsoft's old buddy and still current buddy. And we're also going to talk about bots, which, from where I sit, looks like the early candidate for the most hyped technology of 2016. Uh, joining me today on the show, we've got Stacy Higginbotham of the IoT Podcast. And uh, I'm sure most of you are familiar with Stacy's work, but if you're not, or if you want to get more of it, make sure to sign up for Stacy's newsletter on the Internet of Things and more at StacyOnIoT.com. And that's Stacy with an E. Hi, Stacy. Hi, Tom. Thanks for that intro. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. I would argue that bots are not the most hype technology of 2016. I still think it's the Internet of Things, but ah. and and AI. Well, save your bullets for later. Um, first off, we're going to start with Microsoft, and uh, you know, last week was their sort of their turn in the tech spotlight. It's after most of March. It seemed like Google had really dominated a lot of the. Uh, the talk, you know, in, in terms of its uh, AlphaGo competition and all the amazing things that, that came out of that, as well as um, Google putting on its own cloud conference in which uh, Diane Green and, and Erz, uh old friends of Structure, uh, really put on the full court press when it comes to turning people into the idea of using Google's cloud instead of Amazon or, or Microsoft itself. And I didn't really think anything earth-shattering came out of Build, which, you know, that's not a... I don't mean that as a knock on Microsoft, but you know, the most interesting thing came to be, came, came to seem to seem to me that is about how quickly this company has turned itself around when it comes to its mentality towards cloud and open source in particular. It's not, it's not even you know really that big news when Microsoft announces new um, open source projects and and you know contributions to the open source community. And I, I mean the the fact that that is become you know pedestrian in in what like a couple of years it's just kind of amazing and i wanted to explore that a little bit you know stacy you've been following microsoft for a long time as have i and and, you know not not even five years ago the notion that microsoft would be you know announcing at big developer conferences contributions to open source projects and and incorporating open source into windows itself the (laughs) you know the holy grail of the whole entire you know, mission over there. I, I would call it the golden goose. I mean, it's just, it's impossible. You know, it's actually really cool that I think people these days just sing it as like, well, okay, yeah, that's the new Microsoft. And I think for those of us who have been around a while, it's just still kind of amazing. I mean, you know, other than the fact that Steve Ballmer went off to overpay for an NBA team, what do you think really turned Microsoft around when it came to the embrace of the open source world? I think probably five or six years ago, they realized they had to get into the cloud, right? And when they started building Azure, they had it kind of running separately as its own entity, which is not the ideal way to run any sort of cloud operation. And your cloud operations are going to be mostly open source. That's just the 
the that's where the developers are. And so once Microsoft realized that, they kind of had to go all in. And they've been gradually moving towards that. Earlier the year, earlier this year, they bought, is it Xamarin? I never know how to say this company. You know, name. I was hoping you weren't going to ask me that. Oh, see? All right. They, they bought an open source uh, I think it's, mobile development well, tool, basically. Our apologies to the good people of Xamarin if we butchered that. Sorry. So when they bought that and, you know, that was... That was a big deal for Microsoft. And then in March, they did the SQL Server on Linux, which was, again, a big deal for... It's kind of like a road sign passing. Like when you leave a state and you're driving through and you're like, oh, you've now left the state. You knew where you were going. You knew we were going to leave the state, but you still celebrate because it's a big milestone. And for Microsoft and these kind of moves, they've been making... Passing a bunch of milestones here. The .NET open source project, I think, was the one that where it was really like, whoa, okay, you guys are serious. That was a couple of years ago now, I think. Yeah, um, I think it, it may have been last year. No. No, I think it was no, 2014. But yes. Um, but you know, it's. I mean, you're right, though. I mean, it, you know, with each, you know, that was a huge deal, and you know, .NET was not exactly the co a core strategic product for Microsoft at that point. So open sourcing it was kind of like, wow, it's a big symbolic effect but you know like it how much does it really matter day to day and you know with with the xamarin you know product being baked right into the flagship product i mean you know now it's it's you know microsoft's embrace of open source is wholesale and it has to be because you can't we're no longer okay the ideal is you're no longer in the siloed world when it comes to your internet in infrastructure. And that goes for your servers that are, you know, running your cloud operations, that goes for any of the apps you're building. You want everything to be developer friendly. And, and even develop was, I'm sorry, that was part of the whole thing though, right? I mean like in order to run Azure as a world-class cloud computing platform, they had to offer Linux servers to their customers. Oh yeah, well and they had to they had to start building on, you know, Zen hypervisors. They had to do a lot. I mean, they had to embrace it internally before they started releasing it publicly. And I guess the the point is that all the developers you see running around today have Macs. And it's not just because Macs are cute, cool, trendy computers. It's because it's easier to program on them because the, the terminal, you know, you can go straight into uh, programming right there as opposed to on Windows where you can't. And that's a problem. That means people aren't buying developers aren't buying engineers aren't buying computers that run windows and, and those are very powerful computers you know they're, they're high-end machines that i mean back in the day you know microsoft dominated that space and and you know it's 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 kind of funny how quickly that that has all shifted yeah so if you don't want to end up being the company that makes mainframe software which you know ibm still very powerful you profitable out, business you can crank out a few years of revenue off of that but it's a declining you know it, it, it's a it will only be so large after a certain point in time. And I don't think, I mean, to me, this whole thing is about Microsoft realizing that it could have been headed for an IBM-like future where it was just milking revenue from its existing clients who were too freaked out to switch to anything else new. You know, they, to their credit, they they finally just came to terms with that and, and started doing things that were state-of-the-art. And, you know, they weren't invented at Microsoft, which was a, I'm sure a big cultural, you know, pill to swallow in terms of 
like, wow, you know, a lot of this cutting edge technology was invented somewhere else and we need to embrace it or we're just, you know, we're not doomed, but we're, we're certainly not going to be headed in the right direction. Well, I think once Microsoft, once Steve Ballmer left Microsoft, I think that was a big kind of moment when they were like, it's kind of like when your parents leave the house and you're a teenager, you're like, I'm free. Or maybe it's more like going off to college and actually becoming a responsible adult. Let's let's pretend it's that. Yeah. Whenever the parents leave, the, the productivity goes down, I think. So, yeah, I don't know if I'd Whoa. use that metaphor. but New metaphor. Okay. <laughs> um. I mean, where do you think, how, how far can this go at Microsoft? I mean, like it, at, at a certain standpoint, you know, I, I think we've, <laughs> we've talked with a lot of people from Microsoft over the years, and I think they still are very proud of the technology they create internally. And, and I think they still want to, you know, be a company that can layer homegrown proprietary software on top of some of these projects, which of course is a very popular business model these days. Um, so how do you think that plays out for them? I think Microsoft realizes that it can't sell software. It has to sell services. And so all of its software needs to be kind of built for its services. And this is kind of how Google works. This is how, well, this is how Amazon works. And so Microsoft has realized kind of the, the world has changed. And actually, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but that's kind of what they're doing with their bot strategy. They've created a bunch of services that they sell or that they offer developers and the hope is that, you know, you buy their cloud service to host your bot applications. So the point here isn't Microsoft is the top selling software company anymore. It's going to be the top sell top services company. And that's a big shift. Yeah, but I think you nailed that. I mean that 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 really is the you just don't buy software packages anymore as as an individual or as a corporation. You know, you buy um, you rent these things, you don't buy them. And, and you know, that I, I just, I would love to have been party to some of the discussions that, you know, were taking place inside of Microsoft as they, you know, realized this, I mean, you know, the, a lot of very brilliant people over there, they knew these trends were happening, but it was more like, how do we take our company and our culture and embrace these trends? And I mean, it's also... they've, they've threaded that needle about as well as any turnaround I've seen in the last decade or so. Yeah, I mean, Oracle's in the same spot, and, and, and so is SAP. I mean, Oracle's not really making that shift quite the same way, and, and you don't know if it's for cultural reasons or for technology reasons or for whatever. SAP seems in a little better position. Um, well, it's hard. I mean, they're yeah. cannibalizing your own business. Right. And if you think about it, we had the same shift, actually, with Verizon and AT&T and the wireline-to-wireless transition. They had to stop you know, investing as much in their wireline business as those revenues were declining and boost their wire wireless business. And they had to do it without kind of threatening that wireline business while the other changes were being made. And I mean, this is this is a classic kind of, I guess it's the, is it the innovator's dilemma, Clay Christensen stuff? Sure. I mean, you know, Microsoft made the, the personal computing, the client server era of computing is is impossible without Microsoft. So, you know, I mean, obviously they built that whole thing, but we're in a cloud and mobile world now, as Satya says every 30 seconds. So, you know, like I think it's one thing to say that, though. It's one thing to recognize that and to and to trot that out as a talking point. It's another to actually do it. And, and it seems like in 2016, they're actually doing it. I agree. So we'll see. So just to switch gears a little bit and talk about companies that uh, made the client server era of computing happen, but are 
having a little bit of trouble figuring out what comes next. Uh, we've got our old friends at Intel. Um, and, you know, there was an interesting move this week. Two prominent Intel executives uh, have decided, or it was decided for them, that they are leaving the company. Uh, Kirk Skougen, uh I think I did not butcher his last name. Uh, Kirk's had a number of roles over the years, uh, you know, across different groups at Intel, but was most recently in charge of Intel's client computing group. Uh, he's going to be moving on with uh, plans to be determined. Uh, and then also Doug Davis, who was in charge of Intel's Internet of Things group. Um, it sounds like he's retiring. Uh, you know, it could be completely coincidental, could be two, uh, two people who are parting on, on, on good terms. But when two group leaders leave on the same day as part of an announcement, it seems like part of a grander plan. Um, and, you know, we've, we've had... Uh, We've had Diane Bryant from Intel's data center group on, you know, at several structure events over the past couple of years. And it seems like, you know, Intel is doing very well in that space as as cloud providers build out um, their their services. But, you know, these other two groups, you know, they seem to be kind of struggling. No one really understand, exa understands exactly what's going to happen with traditional client computing. And the Internet of Things has a lot of promise, but hasn't really gotten off the ground in in terms of the volumes that Intel needs. So you followed Intel for a long time. What's going on over there? So what's happening at Intel is actually really simple. It's that Intel is a company that is built around making one to two different types of processors or a few kind of processor architectures and making a whole hell of a lot of them for a hell of a lot of servers and PCs. And what what happened is the world changed in Intel couldn't change fast enough with it. And people will say, oh, Intel missed mobile. But what they really missed was the fact that, well, there's a couple things they missed. They missed the fact that power consumption was becoming a huge, it, much more important compared to performance. So how many you know gigahertz a computer chip ran at. Um, and so they kept investing there while also simultaneously running against the laws of physics on that side. And then they didn't focus on investing in low power. Um, and because of that, as we move to mobile, as we move to tablets, et cetera, Intel's chips just weren't ideal for all day battery life in these kind of devices. And then at the same time, they weren't ideal for the performance of running hundreds of thousands of servers, which is an insane amount of servers, but it's what these big guys have. They probably have more. When they made the shift, they made it fairly gradually and we're still not seeing a lot of success in, in their mobile or embedded kind of places. They've made a lot of purchases. They've purchased like Wind River on the software side um, for the Internet of Things. They've purchased a bunch of wearables kind of companies. But at the end of the day, the company is just not set up to produce hundreds of different SKUs or hundreds of different of types of chips for products that are going to be sold like in the hundred millions as opposed to the billions. I mean, does that they, make sense? Yeah, it, it does. I, I mean, they've had a few design wins in, in phones here and there, but I mean, I don't think they've, I don't think they're shipping any kind of chip in, in the, you know, the mobile space or the internet of things space in the kind of volumes that, you know, really make anybody sit up and take notice. And I would they, also add one more thing to your, you know, sort of looking at back over the years, I mean, one of the problems that Intel has as a uh, company dedicated to manufacturing its own chips is that state-of-the-art chip manufacturing plants are 
ridiculously expensive. And if you want to uh, make your money back on that investment, you need to run them at a certain level of capacity in order to make sure you're generating enough revenue to, to cover that investment. And, it, you know, when they set up a lot of their current facilities, they were still cranking out PC and server chips at that rate. And, you know, with this shift, you know, the PC market in, in you know, more or less gradual decline and the server market changing dramatically towards a more customized thing, as you point out, you know, <laughs> they have this problem with, with capacity and capacity planning and, and like, where do they find the chips they need in order to make sure those factories are running at full tilt. And, and here's the other thing that people don't often think about, but it's really important for like the internet of things, less so for the PC and client server business, which is just dying. Um, what was that term? It just... <laughs> that was, that was my raspberry. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so on the, on the IOT side, the chips are cheap. I think uh, in an earnings call, the CEO of Intel mentioned that their cheapest, you know, Internet of Things embedded chip has got an average selling price of seventy cents, which wow. is expensive for an embedded. Like if you're looking at like RFID and printable electronics, but for Intel, where their their ASPs on average selling price on their server chips is in the hundreds of dollars, you're like, oh, so that's that's a big deal for them. So in they're data center business, which is what Diane Bryant runs, brings in, I think it was almost $16 billion in 2015. And all the growth. I mean, all the and growth has been in the data center group. A little bit. So their IoT business did grow in 2015, but it's $2.3 billion, and it only rose 7%, which was less than the year before, and probably a result of a lot of the buy, like the purchases and software deals. These aren't chip deals. So I, Intel's got it's going to be hard for it to move the needle. One, it's got a lot more competition in this space. You can, I mean, Qualcomm's a competitor. Anybody designing on ARM can take a license for this, you know, the ARM architecture and build whatever they want. Whereas Intel's still, you're still plugging away at x86. And I, I just, I don't have a lot of faith in kind of where they're going now and I'm, just sort I'm of to get, yeah i mean I, I i agree with you i think you've laid it out pretty pretty well and you know i sort of go back to you know the fact that these two executives have left the company i mean I, you know i don't um i don't know exactly what doug had how he had steered the internet of things group but you know in terms of leading the client computing group like i don't really know who could turn around some of these trends you know it doesn't seem like in the client computing group, I, I think there was an execution problem back in the day, as you pointed out, with the focus on power or the focus on performance over power. Um, but you know, now that you've gotten religion on that, it's it's really just a you know it's a much larger you know business market problem than it is necessarily what Intel's client computing group is doing to challenge that. In the Internet of Things group, the opportunity is is up for grabs, right? So maybe there's more that Intel could do there to capture that? It just, it seems like one of these things where, you know, the people running the, the thing may have just been the ones to get, to take the fall for the performance overall. And, you know, I, what types of things do you think new leaders of these groups can do in order to get Intel pointed in the right direction? So Intel on the Internet of Things side, I think what they need to do is they need to create a compelling story around it. They need to 
they have a they have a module called Curie, which uses the Quark chip and is for wearables. And they're really pushing that hard. But so far, I don't see design wins. And until we do see the design wins, it's it's unclear if that's going to make it. If it doesn't make it, Intel really needs to decide how it wants to play in the Internet of Things. Because if it wants to play as a chip company, it's going to have to change kind of everything about itself it, from manufacturing to to the marketing and kind of the way it interacts with developers. The good thing that Intel has is wonderful marketing to developers. It has a budget, it has IDF, it has visionaries, it has the Intel brand name. And what it can do if it has the technology, even if it's not Intel built and homegrown, even if it's an acquisition of, you know, some crazy sensor companies, it could really sell those. But right now it's kind of trying to sell something that's relatively new and that nobody seems to really want. And that's hard. I sort of wonder if Intel has to embrace the same thing that we were just talking about with Microsoft, the uh, the not invented here, you know, roadblock that a lot of companies come across. Like, you know, I mean, if, if, if the opportunities are in different, you know, uh, instruction sets or different architectures, then, you know, maybe it's time for Intel to get a little more serious about those, which I know... I mean, you talk about your cultural shifts. I mean, anything Intel shifts away from x86, if that happens, like to me, that's a bigger shift than Microsoft moving away or embracing open source. But so we'll see. when they bought when they bought Peak, uh, basis sorry when they bought Basis, the maker of the Peak Watch or the Basis Peak. Anyway, when they bought that company, they actually are now selling a product with an ARM chip inside. And so, lastly, today, let's talk a little bit about bots. And it seems like every company in tech so far in 2016 wants to talk about their bot strategy, uh, from Facebook to Google to Microsoft, and including a rapidly increasing number of startups. Uh, bots, for and correct me if you think this is wrong, Stacy, but for the purposes of this discussion, let's call them computers pretending to be humans based on artificial intelligence research. Does that make sense? Wow, where'd you get that definition? That came out of my brain. Wow, okay. I Yeah, I guess that's... I, yes, we'll we'll call it that. I think of I'm them sure as sure people will quibble with that. But no, I I think of it as as a natural a natural interface for a, well a natural interface for APIs is kind of how I think of them. Mm. But well. you're right, it is powered by AI. I mean the the natural interface is that's what the AI part of it is. It's the voice interaction or the speech to text translation. So and yeah, they're delivering information. So, but this isn't really a new concept, you know. I mean, there've been um, really poorly performing chat bots on, like, you know, your your telecom bill, and um, you know, maybe some some things with airlines, and you know, like there've been sort of internet bots around for a very long time. Uh, but it seems like they're getting way more sophisticated, and it seems like people think that there's about to be a, you know, kind of a, a bigger leap in in performance and sophistication over the course of the next year or so. Why do you think this is all coming together now? Sure. Um, I think two reasons. One, we need a natural user interface. As people, our software is getting so much more complicated, and we're having to do so many more things on computers. And computers are a sucky way to interact with like information and, and to perform tasks because you've got to type in weird commands. And you know, if you go all far enough back, you're like, oh, GUIs, they're great. Oh, you know, various programming languages make it easier. But bots are like the ultimate in easy programming. It's you're asking, 
your software to do something for you in a way that you feel is normal, like, hey, I want to order a pizza, and voila, the software figures out what you said, and they make they figure out the commands to go execute it, and then it goes and executes it. And since we're doing everything on computers, that's just how it's going to be. Would and you consider Alexa a bot? <sighs> Because it's kind of the same idea, right? It's it's a it's a voice I enabled UI with your with a computer that that you just you know say things to, and then it goes off and it does them for you. So I, I think bots like, are part of this natural interact this natural user interaction. I think they're part and parcel of what the Echo is. So is is Amazon's Alexa? Sorry for anyone who has this a bot. I don't I don't know, but it's. It's part of that overall trend. And that, that trend is what's really important. And that's what's driving bots. So we can get all excited about bots, but if we don't see, I guess, the bots for the trend, the forest for the trees here, we're gonna we're gonna miss out on what what's really happening here, I think. I mean, to me the interesting thing is is, you know, I and I think you were right to to reference the API um, you know, situation when, when when you're defining this, because I think that a lot of these companies are talking about developing bot software as part of their cloud services, you know, so that like if you're building an app on top of AWS or Azure or Google Cloud Platform or whatever, that, you know, these kinds of sophisticated artificial intelligence um, capabilities, there's something you can just sort of check a box for and pay in, in your in your cloud services thing, which is it's really interesting to me that, you know, we, we've been talking a lot, obviously, at Structure about the evolution of the cloud and, you know, where things are going to compete, where the competition is going to be over the next couple of years now that the evangelism part of the market is, is clearly taken hold. You know, it's really more about features and services and that, and that kind of thing. There are a lot of people who think that AI and bots and these kinds of things are how Google and Amazon and, and Microsoft are going to compete against each other. Do you think that... How specialized, I guess, a market is that, or is that something that has as much widespread potential as the cloud itself? I think the underlying AI infrastructure, the services that offer you voice chat or voice uh, speech, to, the services that offer you speech to text translation, for example, or the services that offer you a predictive algorithm, those are going to be like the software for the next generation, the services for the next generation of building software, I guess is really what it is. And developers are going to be say they'll link their APIs to those services to deliver a different service for the end user. So in a way, that's why all of those companies are researching like base level AI stuff, because they need to build the best tools for the developers to use for like building these bots, basically. So that's that's what's happening there. Uh, I really think the way people, again, I'm not harping on this. I am harping on this. The way people are going to interact with computers is driving this and is the reason why this is happening. And it's going to enable people to build more software, better software. Soon we're going to have access to APIs, just you and I as like non-programmers, and we're going to be able to build things. And that's because more and more of our lives are built in the digital world. So we have to understand it and we have to be able to manipulate it the same way we do the physical world. And these companies are building the tools that will enable people to do that 
right? They're building the tools that enable developers to let normal people do that. I just keep having these, like, you know, I keep thinking of these bots as, like, the new automated, you know, call center thing. You know, you're sitting there, like, trying to enter, trying to, I don't know, look up your credit card information or, you know, cancels a service or something like that. And you spend there, you spend 15 minutes trying to interact with this, like, voice that can't understand you. They are are much smarter now. I hope so, because those are the most frustrating things in the world. And they're. so that gets to a big point. They're frustrating when they don't work. But right. when they do work and you're on a call and you just have a simple question that can be answered by one, it's amazing. You're like, score, I just spent a minute and a half on the phone and I got my information. And so I think that's going to be the big challenge. And that's, again, why, why the AI is so important and why the comparisons, I think, to Clippy are actually really astute. <laughs> no, Clippy. Or comparing Microsoft's bots to Clippy. But... It's when these things work, it's freaking amazing. And when they don't work, it pisses you off because you're like, you're slammed back into reality and you're dealing with ultimately a computer, which is really fundamentally dumb. I mean, all computing has kind of always been like that, right? Like people are amazed by the potential of what they can now do. And then like each with each new sophisticated thing comes a new headache, you know, that you hadn't really thought about before. And, you know, I guess that's sort of part and parcel with advancement is that, you know, you you... You come out with something cool and then you test it on a bunch of people and they work out the kinks. And then, you know, a couple of years later, it's 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 pretty smooth sailing. So, I mean, maybe bots are destined for the same kind of place. I, I, you know, it, to me, it's just interesting how um, web development and enterprise development, you know, both consumer and enterprise development seems to be incorporating these notions of bots more and more into their their uh, plans for the rest of the year and, and into next year and and. I mean, it's, you know, when it comes to user interfaces, we haven't really seen a lot of innovation since perhaps, you know, the, the iPhone and that, you know, Slack, that... Slack bots. Yeah. Well, Slack is, <laughs> no, Slack is, they... I mean, it's, you know, you're right. I mean, you're right, but it's a little different. I think, I don't think it's a, yeah, I think Slack bots are, are used by, you know, a small portion of the overall Slack user base and maybe we can get they... them on sometime to talk about that, but. They are, but they're, they're part of this. I don't know if it's a it's a hacker mentality, if yeah. it's just figuring out how to interact with, again, more of our lives taking place online and being able to customize it and do productive work with it. I mean, I, I created little bots on Slack for all kinds of st- like stuff ranging from really useful to stupid. So... Entertaining I mean, was the word you were looking for. Entertaining. That's entertain- Some of my colleagues might have disagreed. I don't know. Do you remember the Shingy bot? <laughs> uh, yes, I do. My favorite one that we had was the was the whenever anyone gets launched into space uh, bot. Yes, yes, astronauts, not not just anyone. True, good point. Legitimate, <laughs> legitimate. Talked about launches. Not Richard Branson's little thing. Yeah. Um, well, I think that is all the time we have, and you know, I, I wanted to write a bot to uh, send us out today, but but I I'm not good at that, so. Instead, I just wanted to thank everybody for listening to yet another edition of The Structure Show, and thanks, Stacy for coming on. Uh, stay tuned next week. We'll have a lot more for you, and thanks, as always, for your time. <laughs> <laughs>